0: Welcome to the Cross-Border Interview Podcast, a podcast about getting out from behind the keyboard and just talking. Each week, we invite a guest or two to sit down and talk about their life and their work. I'm Christopher Brown, your host, and this is the Cross-Border Interview Podcast featuring...
1: Town of Vigerville councillor, Tani Mudik.
0: Um, our today's, uh, today's guest is... Three-term councillor for the town of Vegreville, Tanine Rudick. Rudick, sorry, um, Tanine. Thank you so much for doing this. Greatly appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for asking me. It's a pleasure.
0: Um, Tanine, my first question for all municipal councillors or all elected leaders is: Where does your sense of duty come from?
1: I think that is something that I was raised with. Um, our family was always involved in the community, and the idea that you make things better right where you live is something that we were brought up with. And I think that's probably inculcated from the time we were little.
0: Were your parents political? Uh,
1: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they are. Um, And I, and I guess uh, in organized politics, but also in community building. So community building, I would say was um, what I understood first, but I do have very vivid memories as a kid uh, attending Um, I guess it would have been a protest, and I'm not even certain what it would have been protesting for, Uh, but uh, as a young kid, 20% Makek and Repent is uh, ingrained in my memory, Uh, but my parents were both involved in local politics, community organizations, um, and it started with National Farmers Union and then, of course, also in more organized politics, my, my dad was eventually elected as a, an MLA, and my mom was a party president. Um, so they were both very active in being campaign managers and running elections. And as a kid, um, at 12, I guess, my dad was first elected. So this is how I grew up.
0: Uh, elected in the riding in Beggarville, I'm assuming? In Beggarville,
1: yes. Yeah, in Beggarville, he was elected in 1986 and 1989 and then lost in 92. Um, So this was all right in my formative years, I guess. Um, So this is really, our house was small and our table was lively. So there was always discussion about uh, a lot of issues at our dinner table.
0: So you you got to see the highs and lows of politics, because uh, as a politician, you know, uh, as a uh, daughter of a politician, you know that uh, the The politician will go away and come back, and you might not see them for a few hours or a day or two at a time. Um, So, when 2010 came around, you decided to put your name on the ballot um, for your first election. Uh, Take me through that decision of actually deciding to put your name on the ballot.
1: So, I guess um, it would have been a process of thinking about it for a long time and then things aligning and then being asked. So, um, I've Talked about this a lot as I encourage other women to run for politics too. Is that a lot of times people need to be asked, particularly women, um, because life is busy. And for me, my family was still young, um, and it sort of came at a crisis point for me um, in terms of thinking that I always did want to run. That was always my goal. I think that was my uh, yearbook Uh, future goal was to be the first female prime minister of Canada, but. Kim Campbell got that honor, and I know that you've interviewed her. Um, But I was diagnosed with MS, and um, I thought, I don't know how quickly this will progress, and I wanted to make sure that I had an opportunity to run. So I decided, and in a small community, you can can run an effective campaign very quickly if people know you and you're active, and I had been very active in my community. So I decided to run.
0: And the decision for uh, local politics, because uh, serving your community can happen in multiple levels. It can be school board, it can happen uh, volunteerism, uh, municipal, provincial, and federal. You chose a municipal. Was there an issue that was happening on the municipal level that you said, you know what, this need issue needs to be addressed, and I think I'm the best person to address it?
1: Um. No, there wasn't a burning issue at that time. I think it was more a case I I was asked by a couple of people that had experience uh, working locally and thought that I would transition well because a lot of what I was doing was community building, exactly, volunteerism, very active, um, doing a variety of different things to make my community better. And as a part-time paid position, being able to actually change what was happening In some senses or influence it because a lot of people that get into municipal politics particularly in small communities are retired and it's because they have time but i was a busy younger mom i guess i was younger then um, and i felt like my perspective was very different and there are a lot of people like me that needed to be represented at the council table so um with support of my husband and my kids and my parents It was a $500 budget campaign. So again, in a small community, um, my two contributors were my dad and my husband or really our account. So I don't really have any favors that I owe to anybody except to be a good family member. So it was a quick launch.
0: And let's talk about that campaign, uh, because the first campaign is always a nerve wracking campaign, because uh, for some for you, you must you must have had the experience of door knocking with your father. And so you knew that was going to be one of the main issues that you'd have to get to is go out and knock on all the doors and get people to vote for you. But um, that campaign, was there anything that surprised you during the campaign when you came up and knocked on people's doors or were at the grocery store and people came up and said, hey, we're going to vote for you? Was there anything that shocked you during that campaign?
1: Not so much the first one. Um, the second one I would have, I, I would say, was a little bit more surprising too because it's one of those things, it, it is always surprising to me what people get hot under the collar about. And some of the things that people get really upset about have absolutely nothing to do with municipal government. And I, I guess that just highlights that um, sometimes you think things will be very upsetting to people and it's not at all what they're concerned about. Um, but also surprising too, like you have no you have no reason to understand why people will vote for you or if they actually do. So that is always in the top of my mind when I'm talking to people. But it, it's a little bit hard because I am a very outgoing person, but I am shy. So it is a little bit intimidating to go and ask people, um, would you be willing to support me? And then having people that I have that don't even live in the community saying, do you need money to run your campaign? Like, well, no, (laughs) actually, (laughs) I'm okay. I just need to put a couple ads in the paper and I've printed up a bunch of signs. I can reuse them the next time. Um, But it's a little bit nerve wracking, too, because I uh, like I said, I'm a little bit reserved in some ways. So it's a little bit intimidating to ask people
0: to support you. And it's nerve-wracking to ask people to support you, but it's also nerve-wracking to see that ballot for the first time with your name on it because uh, I've had the opportunity to see my name on the ballot and I can tell you it is a surreal experience and I you expect to get your own vote hopefully if you do go in and you vote for yourself you don't expect other people to vote for you because in the back of your head you're thinking okay I'm doing this and I'm, I'm gonna lose and I can go back to my regular life for you going into that ballot b- b- uh, box in 2010 in October how was it to see your name on the ballot and and how surreal was it to say, hopefully people will vote for me?
1: Well, it's one of those things, too, that you, um, I, like I said, I, I'd already imagined myself running at some point and um, trying to explain to other people, too, especially with municipal government, that you have the option to vote for up to six people, but you shouldn't um, if you have only one clear choice because you, you don't want to dilute your own voice if you're very clear about who you want to vote for. And then myself going in there and seeing people that are my friends, my neighbors that are also running and making sure that I'm not spoiling the ballot because I've worked as a scrutineer. I've worked as a, you know, a campaign worker. I've worked actually on federal and provincial elections many times and had to deliberate whether or not it was a spoiled ballot. So looking and actually making sure that I was marking the ballot correctly was my, uh, my really pointed point. Um, and then afterwards, when I was successful, um, one of my kids. And the funny thing, too, election night there was no uh, celebration. My husband was working out of town, so he had to vote in the advance poll. He, my brother-in-law came over to have a drink with me, and my dad, because um, my mom was teaching, and my kids were all in bed. So I'm by myself celebrating in my kitchen, having a, a little beverage by myself. And the next day, as the kids are getting ready for school one of my daughters said, Oh, I'm so glad that you won, mom. I knew that you and dad would vote for you, but I didn't know if anybody else. would."
0: <laughs> so, so I, I got to ask the question. Do you remember who told you that you won? Was it like announced on a website or was it someone who called you and said, congratulations, you were a counselor elect now? Um,
1: you know, I'm trying to think back because you know what, this is, it doesn't seem that long ago, but there love- wasn't, there wasn't Twitter. Yeah. Um, and uh, well, it was, but it wasn't really that prominent or used. I didn't have an account then, I don't think. And the, our local radio station wasn't in existence yet. I think I must have gotten an email. That's what I was waiting for, is an email to get the confirmation. And I had a phone call from, this, um, from somebody that was maybe at the election count. That must have been how. I actually forgot. I, I don't remember. How um, weird is that?
0: Yeah, you, you mentioned something, and I just want to clarify this for the listeners. You said that um, uh, when you go in, you vote for six people. So, Vegard, the town of Vegreville is at a at large district uh, vote, correct? It is, yeah,
1: and, and and I think that's one of the things that's really different too. With a ward system in a city, for example, you have to. Um, appeal to the people in that ward, and there could be tens of thousands, whereas, you know, Vacaville is a small community. There's, you know, 6,000 people, and you need to appeal to them all, you know, Uh, young and old alike going into seniors' homes, and that's the thing, too, is that you're really running. And and their second term, I can't remember how many candidates there were, but I want to say there were 19. So, obviously, people felt we were either doing a poor job or they felt that it was um, important that they get involved. And honestly, that's the whole part of democracy. We wanna get a a lively discussion about a variety of topics and make sure there's a lot of selection for people to make.
0: Wow. Um, And correct me if I'm wrong because I've spoken to uh, a few towns and summer village and uh, cities. Um, The mayor is elected separately. The the council does not elect the mayor in Vegreville. correct? That's right.
1: And I've, uh, I've had the good fortune in my three terms to be under three different mayors, three very different styles of leadership. And again, it is uh, there are o- occasions where people have to vote from their elected body. So Reeves uh, chosen from uh, a body of six or seven elected officials. And it really, it's a difficult um, tangle of egos and experience. And it doesn't always end up working
0: out really well so this is actually a better system i think and that's the great thing about municipal politics i find and i'd like to get your opinion on this is um you're one voice on a a council of seven these six councillors one mayor um you have to get four of your councillors to agree with you so while you might agree that one issue is important if four other counselors don't agree with that stance, then you're not going to be getting that. So has working on a group of seven in that situation and three terms with three different mayors, has that a, a given you the ability to adapt to uh, working with different people? Because that's the one thing that municipal counselors have to do is they have to adapt. They have to make sure that they're always uh, representing their people, their their residents correctly and to the best of their ability. So has that three leadership styles ensured you the ability to adapt to represent your residents a lot better?
1: I would say yes. I think that that's one of the the sweet spots of municipal government, um, particularly in Alberta, because it's nonpartisan. And one of the things that I enjoy the best, because um, the idea that particularly in this climate currently, um, whether it's federally or provincially, I think a lot of... um, discussions are very polarizing and they're based on the idea that one person wins and another person loses. Instead of really understanding that um, we work better when we can all listen to one another and come to a mutually agreeable decision. Now, that's not to say that there haven't been times where I've been approached by some counselors to vote this way and I'll support you on this decision. And when I've been approached by that um, type of wrangling. I find that personally very distasteful. Um, I think it's more a case where I feel you debate what you're supposed to do in municipal government or in any decision. You are presented with a set of facts. You are given um, research by administration. You do your own research. Then you come to the table with an open mind. You're supposed to arrive there without any preconceived um, ideas and debate the issue and emerge with a decision that's mutually acceptable that isn't always the way that it happens and I have been in I've had terms on council that have been extremely contentious and very very hard to be a part of um there's been block voting and you knew that there were secret discussions happening outside of the council chambers um a lot of things that I wouldn't agree with and couldn't share with the public because you're bound by um the rules that govern you. And so while I'm following the rules, I know that other people aren't. Very hard to to work in that kind of stressful situation. And, you know, being told that I need to grow up. And I said, no, actually, I I don't think it's a case of being uh, a grown-up. I actually think it's more grown-up to understand what our role is. And it's not about creating favor and, and making decisions that benefit one group or another, that we're actually thinking about the community that lives here today, and the community that's going to be here 30 years from today. So I don't make decisions that work best for me. I'm thinking what's best for my community. And I represent a lot of people that live here too.
0: We have a lot to unpack with you because your career since 2010 has spanned the AUMA and FCM, and we'll get into those very quickly. But the one last question before we transition into those is um, stepping on the floor of the council chambers for the first time. What was that moment like for you? Because now the weight of the residents that have elected you are now on your shoulders to say, we we trust you with budget, with taxes, with day-to-day decisions that are going to affect our lives because um, we, we've mentioned it briefly a bit here. Municipal politics is the frontline politics of politics. Garbage pickup, if it doesn't happen, they will call your counselor. If uh, your water isn't turned on, they will call your counselor. especially in a small rural community as well. Um, so stepping on that floor as the as the newly elected councillor for Vegarville, how was that?
1: Well, I guess I, I took it seriously. And, and that's kind of my personality, too, is that I, I take it seriously. So I do I do like doing the research and I, I make copious notes um, and I have, I have a lot of documents that I've kept, even though I've shredded a lot too. And as much as a paperless world that we're supposed to be living in, I still like to write handwritten notes and just sort of capture what is happening so that I can remember because um, I think it's serious. So I, I did feel that I was given people's trust and that I take it seriously. And, and so it was also a little bit... Um, humbling too, because I'm working with people that I respect to be able to sit beside them. And, um, you know, I, I joke now with our mayor, I often call him your highness. He doesn't like that as much as your worship, but there are honorific terms that, that come along with this office and we all take each other, um, personally, but there is some respect and some decorum that needs to happen because I've seen what happens when it goes the other way. So I take it very seriously.
0: That's awesome. Um, in your so in 2010 you were elected. If I'm not mistaken, and correct me if I'm wrong, in 2016 you decide to join the AUMA board, correct, or am I incorrect on that statement?
1: I think that's correct. I actually should have uh, gone back and taken a look, but I think that's I think that's the reason. well. You,
0: you you decide to join the AUMA uh, board. Um, do you remember what what made that decision, or was it just a progression of you know what I have something to give, and I believe that I can give it at the uh, the board level and had there been a representative of the auma from the town of eggerville before you
1: not that i know of i know that there has been an AUMA president in the past um, in the distant past um, not one that i was familiar with um, but at that point there was uh, a change a gap on the board and so they had sent out requests for submissions and i thought exactly as you had said that I wanted to do a little bit more to represent our community and that I think that's one of the things too, that you learn the longer that you're in this kind of position that there are so many things that are similar. It doesn't matter where you live. Everybody likes to um, assert that their community is different and better. And of course they are with their unique character, but a lot of things that are similar are the human issues around providing a good quality of life and being able to provide exactly what you, you referenced earlier is that, People need to be able to do the inglorious task of turning on the water and brushing their teeth every day and flushing to make things leave your house and and have it be safe. And uh, and and all people should have that that right to those basic services. So I felt like there was um, something that was uh, that I could offer and that I had the energy and the time to be able to provide that.
0: So from your in your own words, what is the AUMA to you?
1: For me, uh, the Alberta Urban Municipalities Association provides an opportunity for municipalities of all sizes to be able to speak in one voice to the provincial government, and a very needed conversation needs to happen in that format because speaking one by one uh, dilutes the individual issues uh, instead of being able to have a more pointed uh, point of access, and the Rural Municipalities Association um, represents the the municipal districts and counties and AUMA represents summer villages, towns, cities, but it, it needs to be that unified voice to be able to approach the province because it's very easy to ignore a vagarville, but it's much harder to ignore, uh, ignore a body that represents all elected officials across the province.
0: Because that's the one issue that uh, municipalities might have today is um, especially rural municipalities. And I want to get into this before we get into the uh, FCM is the town of Vegreville is part of one riding. And I, I use this as a provincial because we're talking about lobbying the provincial government here. It's part of one riding. So it's not going to potentially see uh, a lot of finances drove, uh, put into that riding because it's so spread out because uh, Beggarville Fort Saskatchewan, which you a provincial riding that you're in, it is a large riding where Calgary and Edmonton have 10, 15 uh, provincial seats. So the AUMA lobbies for those smaller urban centers, correct?
1: Yeah. And, and, and I think even just what you're highlighting too, is some of the the challenges around being municipal uh, leaders, because, It is the frontline services that we provide. Ultimately, it's one taxpayer. People like to refer to that always, whether you're electing a municipal, a provincial or a federal politician to represent your issues. The average person doesn't care who is responsible for that issue, whereas the Constitution uh, does. And it delineates who is responsible for different responsibilities. And and for that reason, then, a lot of times, um, municipal or federal governments will point at each other, and ultimately, who loses is is local leadership. And often, what that means is that um, smaller communities' voice gets lost in the fray, because, of course, people have um, traditionally um, centered themselves in larger urban conglomerations, whether they were cities or towns. Um, that still tends to be the the trend across the world. Urbanization is a fact, although COVID has really put a different twist on that. Um, so for that reason, I think that there needs to be a way for people to be able to access the levers of power, because it's very easy again, to dismiss one by one, all of these small pockets of population, but you know, um, uh, There's a large number of people that live outside of urban centers for a reason. I didn't end up in Beggarville again by accident. It was a deliberate choice. And my children, my family should have the same quality of life um, based on the fact that we pay taxes in every every way, federal and provincial taxes as well. And so for that reason, too, people that live in smaller communities should have access to the same types of services, like uh, broadband, for example, that's been very evident in the wake of covid that there's a very different playing field and we've been talking about it for a long time that again people in rural communities are getting left behind they don't have access to the same educational um, medical uh, entrepreneurial opportunities if they don't have broadband that's a basic right and everybody should have access to it and it's become more evident particularly during covid when everybody was at home or everybody was experiencing challenges it really laid bare um, a lot of topics that we've been talking about for a long time.
0: Now, uh, just a side note here. I, I know that Vegreville just did go through a new revamp of their broadband. So how has that changed the town for the better?
1: Well, I don't know that we've necessarily experienced all of the benefits uh, yet, but we have uh, the good fortune to have fiber throughout our entire community. So as the chair of economic development, that's one of the things that I've been really, trying to focus on is that if you can work anywhere, why wouldn't you work a place um, that has the uh, community-minded amenities so you could live in a smaller community, have the safety, the proximity, and the comfort of being able to live in a safe community that provides all the benefits that your, your workers might want or your family might want. If you can walk anywhere in the community in Uh, Literally from one end to the other in 25 minutes or your commute is five minutes. Imagine how much more time in your life you have to do the things that you want to do. And I, I think that that's really something that we're focused on advertising more and more because it really is a benefit.
0: That's awesome. Um, in 2017, a year after you've joined the AUMA board, you joined the FCM, Federation of Canadian Municipalities. This is one area that I want to take a lot of time into because it is such an important issue, plus also it's an important organization, but also uh, important organization, but also with a potential federal election coming up. How does, and uh, this? I guess my first question is, From your standpoint, what is FCM, the Federation of uh, Canadian Municipalities?
1: So Federation of Canadian Municipalities is uh, an organization that represents about 90% of Canadians in communities of all sizes from coast to coast to coast. And the position that I ran for was to uh, represent Alberta municipalities, again, of all sizes. So this is a position that all delegates that attend uh, annual conference... And it's a one-year term, so I've had to run four different times. And you need to appeal to, again, um, a wide range of politicians. And I think what was exciting to me in that situation is that Alberta has had a, a contentious relationship with the Federation, as I would say. And I think it's really important that Albertans are represented in a way that is accurate and Um, You can be many things to be Albertan. I I think Alberta is uh, a province that has people that have come from all different places and brought their energy and their talent. And um, to depict us in one way or another does us a disservice, and it does the country a disservice. And when it becomes very polarizing over economic issues or environmental issues, um, like pipelines, for example but that really diminishes what Alberta is. And I think that the FCM has been an extremely important body in the last, um, well, it's been an important body over, uh, over its inception since, you know, the early 1900s, but I think it's become ever more apparent that municipal leaders represent Canadians in every community across the country. And when you meet people's basic needs right where they live, you immediately drive the economic and the socio um, standings of people everywhere. And so there's been a lot of relevance given to FCM based on the fact that they can reach people who live in communities of all sizes in every corner of the country.
0: Um, As one of the few, if if I'm not mistaken, I think four (laughs) board members who are currently in Alberta. I think there's one from Calgary, one from Edmonton. I believe there's another one, and yourself. Don't quote me on that, but maybe Taneen will be able to correct me on that. Um, How have you personally advocated for Alberta's uh, municipalities on the FCM?
1: So when I first ran, this was in the week of a decision that was made um, by the federal government for our community. So our largest employer um, was the immigration center, the case processing center. And the way that we found out our council was, um, we were doing different things. I was actually in a meeting and received a text from one of the employees saying that they're shutting down the case processing center. You need to come to this meeting right away. And so a lot of us received these texts and I was um, literally in another meeting and dropped everything and went to this, um, this other building in town where The staff were getting told that this was getting shut down and, you know, too bad, so sad. What are you going to do about it? And it was in the wake of that discussion um, that our our council became very aware of the fact that these decisions can be made without any thought or consequence to the fact that you've completely decimated a community. When 10% of the employment is removed from a community, just at the stroke of a pen, deciding something far away and not understanding the impact to a community is wrong. So in that wake, we started uh, very actively lobbying as a council, which then sort of uh, led me to the position that as a small rural community, this could happen anywhere. If you were going to take 10% of employment away from Toronto, you would be hearing gnashing of teeth and railing against this decision to the highest point. Why isn't Vigorville as important? It should be particularly when there's a lot of uh, time and energy developing programs that are intended to revitalize rural communities or economic development of of different sorts. But it's a decision that was made by the federal government based on a set of parameters that didn't consider the people that it was affecting. And for that reason, too, um, that's really was my focus then. And it continues to be my focus that rural communities need to be heard and There are larger centres of population in the large metropolises of the country. But on a different scale, we have the same issues. Homelessness in Edmonton is a problem. But guess what? It's starting to be more evident in rural communities too. And it looks different, but it, it is experienced in each community. And our ability to be able to respond to those issues is increasingly hampered by the fact that we don't have the populations or we don't have the staff on our administrative team to be able to address these issues. I mean, it's much different if you have an entire team being able to deal with um, social issues. I mean, everybody knows that you're supposed to have clean water and um, sanitation, but do all communities have that? We know that that isn't the case, yeah. particularly with first nations across the country. So um,
0: uh, sorry. It's getting back to the uh, immigration um immigration processing center in Vegreville that was closed down um I, I i agree that it was a stupid move on the canadian government's part it was a stupid move i'll be the first to admit that um playing devil's advocate though it comes down to money dollars and cents is it cheaper to put, have a facility like that in a rural community or an urban center what is your uh your callback to that what, what is your uh a, your sort of checks and balances is to say, you know what, well, it might be, it, it might, it's not cheaper to do it in Edmonton. It's actually cheaper to do it in Vegreville. It is established here. So how do you justify saying, you know what, you can't decimate our community by removing 10% of our workforce, even though it might be cheaper to put it in Edmonton. And I'm not saying it is, I'm just saying to play devil's advocate. How do you advocate for something when the government has to look at dollars and cents, Right, They can't be looking at as a human perspective because people get fired all the time. People get downsized. Companies go through downsizing. Municipalities have had to do it during COVID. They've had to shut down. They had to lay off people because of uh, rec facilities. So in this case, how do you advocate for something that the government has to look at a dollar and cents and respect the taxpayer?
1: So I, this is actually I think one of the things that is was the fire that was really in all of our belly. And we we knew that we couldn't speak loudly enough to be heard. And so we, we hired outside help to be able to focus our attention. And we raised our voice louder. So we we've initially passed a resolution at the RMA, the Rural Municipalities Association of Alberta. Then we passed it at AUMA. We passed it at the federal FCM annual conference. We also did it through the provincial chambers of commerce that then went to the national chambers of commerce that basically said, if a decision is made by the federal government to remove a major employer, they at least need to come up with a business case and speak to the community. Because this is the thing, at first it wasn't even, we didn't even cross their mind. It never came across their mind to say, hey, by the way, we're going to let go, um, you know, 300 people just thought you should maybe know that that it's going to affect your assessment of your property taxes. For example, everybody's houses prices are going to be affected. We're going to uh, remove kids from your daycares, kids from your schools. We're going to change your funding formula with federal and provincial grant funding because we're taking people out of your community. All that aside as disrespectful and dismissive as that was, it didn't make business good business sense. It is absolutely cheaper to run a remote office in a rural community. We proved again and again that this wasn't based on um, good business decision-making. And further, it wasn't made with that kind of decision-making. It was parameters that were put in place. For example, one of the arguments that was made to us is, well, you don't have access to public transit. I said, well, have you been in Beckerville? Because you don't need public transit. I mean, if that's your your scenario that you're you're fitting this parameter of uh, expectations for this office, you don't need one. If you can literally walk from one end of town to the other in under 20 minutes. So this isn't an Ottawa, for example, where you're moving offices from one part of the city to another, this is a small community. So no rural community, including Summerside, PEI, which also has a large government office would meet your parameters. If you come up with those, Uh, if you come up with a measuring stick that applies to cities, it'll never apply to communities like ours. It's a a town. So we proved that over and over again, that this set of decisions didn't have a backing in business sense. It was based on another set of circumstances. And we couldn't change the decision for us. But when we went to the the National Chamber of Commerce and other communities said, well, Beggarville, get over yourself. What does this have to do with us? It was a case of, if this can happen in Beggarville, it can happen anywhere and it, it shouldn't. You should, as a, ta- I'm a taxpayer too, as a Canadian, I feel that decisions should be made that are sound, whether that means that you only consider the dollars and cents, which we proved it was cheaper. It was not cheaper to move to Edmonton. Absolutely not. They said that people couldn't wor- work remotely. Well, COVID <laughs> has shown that a lot of those people are wor- working remotely and they already were. And, um, Again, going back to the the National Chambers of Commerce, they realized, wait a second, our community is on this list too. What if we lose that? And they hit the stall button and said, wait a second, this cannot happen. You need to change this and it needs to be considered. And I think that there has been a real refocus on understanding rural communities differently. So we weren't able to stop the immigration center from closing, um, which is very unfortunate but it's different than a private business making their decision where they locate because there have been other large employers that have left our community before and we can't, we can't change their mind, but the federal government is us. And that's the difference is another order of government making a decision that affects a community is different than a business, making a business decision and relocating their assets because we pay those taxes too. And those are our people. There is no us and them, it is us.
0: We're all so, part of that. So what is the, uh, I, I hate to use this word t- term, but I have, I'm going to use it. What is the silver lining here? What is the change that you saw when you advocated for this? Was it, hey, you need a business plan from the federal government to actually tell us why you're doing this and why it makes financial and financial sense to move a large industry that will affect a, a small uh, urban center or a rural center? out of our community or was there another silver lining that we haven't talked about?
1: I think there's a few different parts, but that's definitely one of it. I think that the understanding that being far away from a community is not an excuse or a reason to not understand the implications of your decision. So I think that's the difference between being administration, for example, or a, a politician. So if you make a decision in an office and you don't actually see what that you know, deciding a sidewalk should go on this corner of the street instead of actually going outside and looking where people are actually walking makes a difference. Yeah. And this is a larger scale of that. But more importantly, too, it really made us as a community wake up because we were fine until we weren't. And to to look at ourselves and address, we don't even know how many people are working in each sector. We don't even know who our major employers are because we have just sort of, we were fine until things happened. And all of a sudden, we needed to really address those issues. So what it allowed us to do is um, work collaboratively, and everybody likes to use that word, but we had a conservative MP, we had an NDP MLA, we had a labor union and municipal government all pulling in the same direction, and it confused the heck out of um, the federal politicians. They were like, what is going on here? How can you all be saying, you know, basically the same argument that this isn't fair and this isn't right? And then after that, going back and saying, okay, business community community at large, what are, what are we, what are we building towards? What are we looking for? How are we going to make our community better? And how are we going to market ourselves? Because that's the thing too, is that we assume that people are going to know, you know, when people say our best, we're the best known secret. Well, we don't need that. We actually need to say, Hey, you in Empton, you don't know your neighbor. Why don't you move to Vegaval when you move here and you can be, um, Heavily pregnant with a toddler and a, a four-year-old, your neighbors are going to bring over baked goods. You want to buy something at the grocery store? We already had delivery. We had that before COVID. You call the pharmacy and you're a senior citizen; they'll deliver it to your house. You want something at the co-op store and they don't have it? Guess what? They'll bring in your free, your uh, safe, uh, free trade coffee with uh, whatever beans you want. They'll bring it because they know that they're going to serve your needs. If you have a specific dietary concern guess what? It's going to come here because you can affect the change that you want to in a small community. So I think that's one of the things that is um, most rewarding for me too. As a community, we've really nuanced our understanding of ourselves to be able to sell ourselves to other people as well, that we understand better who we are.
0: With a potential election, knock on wood, it's not going to happen during a pandemic because that would be the stupidest thing in the history of the world. But I'm not a federal politician. It's a minority government. We'll leave it up to Aaron O'Toole, Justin Trudeau, Jagmeet Singh, and the Bloc Quebecois leader. Um, But if there was an election called within the next, say, six months, six to eight months, because that's what the anticipations and that's what the pollsters are saying, what issue does FCM want on the radar of federal politicians this coming election season and what issue does FCM want residents to start asking their local uh, candidates if on on one side or the other, what they believe is this, uh, what they believe in that issue.
1: I think it's been um, a multifaceted approach. Um, There's definitely a rural lens applied to a lot of different issues, which I'm thrilled about, but an understanding that if you want appreciable improvement to the lives of Canadians and building back better together, that means that you need to include voices from communities all over the country. How you do that is provide the tools to local leaders to be able to do that. And so some of the things that we've talked very specifically about is gas tax funding, for example, Um, perhaps a little bit of a misnomer, but what it is uh, a grant that applies from the federal government directly to communities to make decisions locally. So it allows local economic development by stimulating local tradespeople to build the infrastructure, the buildings, the roads, the sewers that are going to make communities better across the country and um, allow for local projects. So infrastructure, broadband, uh, a focus on transit. So whether you're uh, in a larger center The ability for people to get to where they need to be, whether it's work or home, um, being able to reduce emissions in in larger centres and in smaller centres, there is a new announcement that the federal government put out about um, rural transit. And for me, I think maybe even calling it rural transportation is really key. If you're um, in a small community like ours, you know, it's a, a double divided highway, great commute to the city an hour each way. So... That's easy commute. But if you could allow people to be able to have some kind of transportation system and get them moving to employers or vice versa. I mean, really, if okay, if you don't want to if you don't want to save a couple hundred thousand dollars by moving to Beggarville from Edmonton, for example, and have a smaller class size for your kids and be able to um, have that then maybe you want to come um, reverse commute. Maybe you want to hop on a bus and come to Vigerville, or there's a lot of really creative examples of um, on-demand transit systems in smaller communities. Um, So I think those are the kind of issues that FCM has been putting forward, and it's to all political parties. So despite what I hear sometimes is that it's partisan one way or the other, I think probably they're hitting the sweet spot. If people are saying you're to this or to that, it's actually probably none of those things we're talking about what makes communities better. And that's been a real focus at talking about housing is even more important, whether you're trying to escape suburbia, like I just said, um, and, and be able to have quality of life and being able to own your own home. People are very house poor in the wake of COVID. So those are all issues that federal politicians of all stripes are, are listening to because if somebody wants to come up with the antidote, recovery from COVID, um, is, is a challenge, it's particularly in the wake of the pandemic. There's a lot of things that are still resonating very, very deeply in communities across the country.
0: Before we move on to my next subject, I, I, you brought up the pandemic. And I want to ask, how is the town handling the pandemic? How are your residents?
1: Well, it's been, um, so I, d- I said I'd take copious notes. And so I actually was just going through last year worth of, worth of, um, meetings. And it really changed my reality. I have MS, like I said, uh, a while ago. So right at the very beginning of the pandemic, um, we had to move our kids home from university immediately, um, because the threat to me was, um, quite dire. It's a little bit more evidence driven now that I'm not as fragile as a senior as I thought I was. So that's, that's good, but we really had to retreat and, um, shorten our circle. In a small community like ours, we've been very fortunate to not have an, a lot of cases of uh, COVID, but um, even just being able to advocate for testing and immunization in our community. Again, we're a hub for the region. So making sure that uh, we've got a high population of senior citizen and, and um, making sure that we're not expecting people to go out of the community to get the testing or the immunizations that they deserve. Again. This assumption that you should have to go to a city, and whether it's Camrose or uh, Edmonton, to get um, an immunization is extremely troubling situation if you're a senior citizen that doesn't drive or you're not allowed to be around other people in your family and expecting them to be able to travel like that has been a real challenge. But I think we've done remarkably well. Um, People have taken it seriously. And even, you know, like our masking bylaw too, we've, we've had very contentious discussions on our council, um, but we decided, and I was early on, I, I haven't changed my position. I, I do feel like um, I've been kind of um, steady in that, in that sense that our job is to protect one another. And the way that we do that is by thinking of what's not good for me, but what's good for you. And that's yeah. been a really nuanced Argument in some senses, but you know, I've received some really horrible, hateful messages to me personally um, about that too. And I just feel like, well, at the very end of the day, if we can go back to working normally, and my adult children can resume some kind of normalcy, that would be great. But in the meantime, protecting each other is the most important. And but it's been it's been a tough slog, you know. My husband's uh, work, very affected. My kids' university were paying the same for remote learning. I mean, I've got me working at home, a teenage son attending school, two university students, both laid off of their jobs. You know, it's a very troubling time and really challenging in a small community trying to make economics sound and viable. So we've done very well in Beggarville. But it it has been a challenge. We've got a lot of senior citizens and they're very isolated. And we've been able to do a lot of great tourism activities to be able to safely celebrate where we can. A lot of really creative ideas. We've done really well.
0: Um, yet again, we're closing in on the hour mark and I want to, I know you're a busy person, so I want to get into the last set of questions here because this is a, this is a topic that I I didn't realize about you until we had our pre-interview, but, uh, you are the chair of increasing women participation in municipal government. That's right. Um, With the election coming up in, this is airing in May, uh, May, so let's say five months, uh, from when this is airing. And technically, the nomination period is now, so you can file your nomination paperwork whenever you want. Why is it important today to get more women involved in politics, not just at a municipal level, but all levels of government?
1: I have this discussion all the time, uh, even with uh, female elected politicians. But the statistics are right now that uh, approximately 25% of elected officials are female for various reasons. There are other places where it, it gets higher, but we have a challenge in Canada, making sure that our elected officials represent the communities that from which they come. And voices are different. Our perspectives are different. And it's not just, um, it, it needs to be diverse voices around the decision-making tables. And we need to ask each other. We need to make space for other leaders. We need to have different types of leadership and there's such a range of um, of politicians that are available, but a lot of times women exclude themselves from the opportunity. I mean, myself included. I, I have a poli sci degree. This is something that I'm always had a focus on or interest in, but I never thought that this was the right time or it should work for me. And we need to ask we need to ask women to lead, whether it's school boards or local organizations. But we need to make sure that they're able to run we need to make sure that they win and we need to make sure that they continue to lead because that's the other part too. That's the three part um, of uh, one of the initiatives that I worked as a governance rep for um, is the Towards Parity Project. And it does change the conversation around the tables. And I I would say again, that even, even in the last election um, municipally, I had a little old lady in a senior's home when I was talking to her and she said, what would happen if all of you women won and she kind of giggled and she says, I can't wait to vote. And I, for her, it's a completely different reality. But we, we live in a time where we still are facing that kind of struggle. So Rwanda has parity. Why can't Canada? So we need to actually make it easier for the levers of power to be accessed by a variety of different leaders and not necessarily the
0: traditional. So the, the the first part of that is you have to ask. You have to ask women to run. What is the question you should be asking women to get them involved in politics? Because that is always the hardest part is the first question. How do you get how do you say, "Hey, you should run" from from your perspective and what what do you tell people? What do you tell women across Alberta when they when you tell them you they should be running for municipal government in this upcoming election?
1: Well, I think it's you know, changing what you're already doing, you're, you're managing. And I think that's the other thing too, is that they feel like they don't have the experience. Well, you do, your voice matters. So it doesn't matter if you're, you know, a lot of politicians tend to be lawyers. Is that the best or the only type of leaders that we should have? We should have a diverse set of experience making decisions. I mean, on a, on a given day, we can be making decisions about, um, purchasing a compactor for a landfill or deciding if we're working on our welcome and inclusive initiative for our community, as well as deciding what the bylaw is going to be for dog licensing. I mean, the range of topics on municipal government are wide. That said, there are people of all stripes that remove themselves from that conversation and they don't need to. So I would say you do have the experience, your voice does matter and other people will will support you when you when you start this this project. You will find supporters and people that you don't expect. The other part of it, to be really honest, is that we need to be better to one another. There's no excuse for the kind of derisive, um, horrible things that people uh, receive in in social media. Mostly, it's allowed people to sit at their keyboards and peck away and and horrible things. So it, it does become a challenge to say, yes, you should run. And by the way, you're also going to have to develop a bit of an armor. Because they're, they're, uh, there are women that I know that have had their, their children threatened, they've been um, bullied. And, and you know, the kind of things that I receive, I usually delete them. But I've had messages sent to me just recently that are horrible. And to really? be, oh, you would be shocked. You would be shocked And I think that's the other thing, too, is that we need to shine a light on it. So, you know, Sarah Hamilton is a City of Edmonton councillor, and she started, you know, labeling and, and showing people the kind of tweets that she gets. So I just want everybody to be better. If you disagree about an idea, let's debate those. But when it becomes personal, and I've had this on council, too, let's debate ideas. We can disagree with one another. But if you become vile, you swear at me and you call me names or you comment about my children or my husband or my family, absolutely unacceptable. Wow. So there is, and people will say that this doesn't happen. It does. It is ugly side of politics. So at the same time, I want to encourage people to ask women to run, encourage women, candidates of all kinds. I want the other part of it to happen too, because I've seen a lot of comments from people and They're not shy about it. They have no problem having their name attached to a a news article and saying vile things that they wouldn't say to somebody's face. I want us all to be better. If you're going to debate an issue, do the research, take some time, think about it. And the other part is, is that we're all just doing our best. We're trying to meet a middle ground for a variety of issues and doing our best to represent people. And I have great faith in the majority of elected officials that they come from a place of wanting to help their community. So even if I disagree vehemently with my colleague across the table, I will not call them names. I'm not going to undermine them. And I expect them not to do the same to me, that they will also see me as somebody worthy of respect, humanity and dignity.
0: You've just blown my mind because I, I knew, uh, federal and provincial politicians get a vile hate mail and derogatory things sent to them, but uh, you never expect it on a municipal level, because you think there's a little bit more respect for people who you see in the grocery store or, you know, from down the street or four uh, neighborhoods over. So it's, it's mind blowing that uh, this is happening even on a municipal level as well.
1: Well, and I think one of the things that I would say, you know, I said, we want women to run, we want them to win and we want them to lead. We want them to continue in this role because it's important that not only you get this experience, because if you're going to leave uh, corporate leadership and move into politics and you find out very quickly that the kind of garbage that you have to put up with and not the kind that gets picked up by sanitation crew and taken to the landfill or recycled, like it's surprising the way that we get treated. And you know, it, it is culturally important that we start to be better about how we protect one another. And part of that is, is having a cohort of women officials just sort of talking about, you know, this isn't just you. It's not just you being picked up and bandied about in the news or the opposite, you know, act, asking all of the male colleagues for their opinion about different issues and coming to you for the fluff. It, is, it's, it happens everywhere. And being able to have at least a place to vent about it Um, You know, my husband will want to go out and protect me uh, whenever I get something vile. My kids want me to to do a social media post and just expose this toad that sent me these messages. But I also think there's another part to it, too, is that we all need to think about how we're talking about elected officials. I don't care if you didn't vote for them. Don't vote for them next time. Come up with a different idea. Run a campaign. but stop the nitpicking ugliness. We don't need to do that. That makes us less than what we're capable of. And I I really feel like leadership needs to go to a different level and we need to start thinking about as people, what do we want to do to make our world better? That's what our job is. And we're not being better when we're picking each other apart and, and just being brutal. Honestly, it's, it's shameful when I hear some of the stories of my friends and I'm not going to be shy that there've been a lot of tears when we're talking about these really raw moments and, you know, threatening people's children. There's a mayor in Eastern Canada who has a, a child with disabilities. I mean, really? That, that, that's fodder for Twitter trolls? You're, you're going to pick on a woman's child? Do you do that with a male politician? Do you t- tell a male politician that, where are your kids? Who's taking care of your family when he's at a meeting? It's never, never been a consideration so i think we can be better and i know we can be better and i've seen examples of really high level discussion respectful discord and really mature deliberation about issues and i know we can do that
0: i am one i I've I've, I've I've been open about this since day 1 i think social media has been the down, downfall of society because it has given the voice to Internet people who are so vile and so ridiculous that it is become a new game to them to attack people and attack it. Like you said, if you're attacking someone's child who has a disability, I don't care who that person is. You are the low life of this society. And I think, and yet again, I know you can't say this potentially as a counselor, but I'm going to say this. Social media has not been a friend to society. And I believe that, and I know I get my, my, my uh, I contacted you through social media. There is, a, there is a like double-edged sword to it, but for the majority of it, it is so notoriously bad because people are so keyboard warriors in today's society that they think they can put whatever they want out there and just expect that it's going to be not, not affect them in any way because they're attacking someone else and they're not, they're not feeling the consequences of saying it face to face like you and I are right now. So well, and I think my, we need to call it rant. out. We no, do. I agree
1: with you. We need to call it out. And I think that's the thing too, is that, you know, I debated, but, Oh, should I say anything? And I you know, I texted my colleagues and I said, did anybody else receive this kind of message? Because this is somebody that had access to me because I do have my filters on and I'm very careful too. I think there's another part to it. How you engage on social media is important too. You don't have debate on social media. So I'm also very careful about what I put out there, but it, um, my colleagues hadn't received these comments and I reported to the RCMP and they took it seriously. And the last time I did this, they didn't take it seriously because things have changed over the years too. I think they also understood, wait a second. And this individual, when he got caught, he tried to say that it wasn't him. He was shocked that he got found right away. of course. And he apologized to the RCMP officer. He certainly didn't apologize to me. But I I think that's the other thing is that we need to police ourselves. So I've used social media to keep in touch with my friends across the world. It is my way to be able to connect with um, I was an exchange student in Japan. It's my way to be able to keep in touch and have an eye on what they're doing, at least in a touching way, be able to see like day-to-day in a little touch to be able to see what's going on over there. But we have a responsibility too. And I think that's the other part too, is that everybody feels that they have the right to express their opinion. And I would say you don't. If your opinion is based on misinformation and doesn't consider fact as the basis, No, rights don't come without responsibilities. You need to be very clear about that so that I don't have the right to blast people and they don't have the right to blast me. There is a responsibility. But again, that assumes that everybody is able to be mature. That's true. And Um, it is a nuanced growth. (laughs)
0: Last question before we get into the wrap up here. Um, municipal election, uh, I'm going to take your, your your thought here and ask you one question. And I'm assuming you know what the question is going to be. But can we expect a, a fourth term out of you?
1: Wow. I, I So my notes here and my heart <laughs> both say, I don't know. Okay. So I, I don't know. I The challenge with a, a smaller community is that it's part-time. And it can be as much or as little as you want to. And so I've been fortunate to have really busy terms. I've had the good fortune of being able to work on a variety of initiatives from um, family community support services to solid waste management, to economic development, Chamber of Commerce. I've really been able to run the gamut, and our council has really been able to do a lot of community building in raising our awareness of ourselves, raising the awareness of our community in the larger context. We're really getting to some great conversations about inclusivity and making sure that we include diverse voices, whether it's um, from LGBTQT+, or um, refugees or lower income. We're really expanding our conversations. We're improving our outdoor uh, opportunities in terms of recreation and building facilities out as well as really actively pursuing economic opportunities. So we've done a lot of great things. I really feel like I've made my mark on my community and I can see that I've helped. That said, I don't know. I don't know. It's six months from now. I am looking for full-time uh, employment and it is confusing to people sometimes when they see that I I have um, a part-time job that I feel passionately about but I would also feel passionately about a full-time job. And my my children are older. I've got a lot of energy and um, desire to help building great relationships. I actually really like conflict. That sounds counterintuitive, but I I love getting into the meat of a really contentious issue and being able to rise above it and get people to see commonalities. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to You know, maybe when this airs in a month, maybe things will be a little bit more solid for me. But at this point, it's six months away from actually needing to declare if I'm running Uh, in a small community. Again, you can ramp up pretty quickly and I can run to 2,500 houses. Sounds silly, but I can go to 2,500 doors pretty quickly. Um, So I'm not sure.
0: Oh, well, either way, you have been a delight to talk to. But my last question, and this is this is the part of the interview that I love because I always love to hear politicians brag about their community. So, in a perfect world, pandemic ends the, the day this airs. Why should people come out and visit the town of Vegerville? Wow! Or even better, why should people move to the town of Vegerville? You've talked about it briefly beforehand, but this is the point in time when you can just you can. Preach about your community to your heart's content.
1: Well, okay. So if you're going to come and visit in a pandemic reality that we have, where people cannot travel uh, far away, if you want to be able to have a day trip within the province, it is a welcoming, uh, easily accessible community to be able to come and enjoy a variety of activities. There's a range of shopping opportunities. There's a range of Visiting opportunities, not the least of which is, of course, our beautiful Pysynkia, which is our Ukrainian Easter egg, um, a marvel of engineering and artistry uh, that is able to spin in the wind. So I would encourage people to at least come out and visit the egg. And while you're here, there are lots of opportunities to be able to hop on one of our borrow a bike and ride the trail into the metropolis downtown of Vegerville and see some of our local shopkeepers spend some money locally because you know that you're actually going to be helping small businesses and family support one another. If you're moving, I would say we've got a housing boom right now in Vegas. We've had a, a little real estate boom as people are trying to take advantage of the great interest rates um, and be able to save a lot of money. And if the pandemic didn't drive home the point that you can be close to one another without being physically close, And you can work anywhere, why wouldn't you choose a community that has excellent educational and uh, entrepreneurial opportunities where you know that if you need anything, you can get what you need. So whether it is access to great hospital and medical facilities, a range of opportunities from acupuncture, massage, naturopath, to having a fantastic uh, array of uh, GPs to be able to provide personalized care for your entire family, to being able to access great educational opportunities, this is the place to move to. Beggarville has the options for families, um, people that are going to be um, maybe liquidating their assets out of a house in a bigger centre and moving to a community where you can be able to walk the trails and play pickleball and pursue all of your recreational pursuits in a very easily accessible community, I would say do it. And if you're a business, you want access to rail, you want access to um, the ports to Plain Highway 36 going from northern Alberta all the way to Mexico. It's just a hop, skip and a jump down the road. We also have um, the Highway 16 corridor and we're close to International Airport. So we've got some very big conversations happening with big investors and um, in the industrial hemp industry and really capitalizing on our agricultural opportunities. So come to Vigerville.
0: Awesome. Well, counselor, I want to thank you so much for this. I apologize for running a little bit late, but behind, I apologize, but we, uh, we have dived a lot into a lot of uh, subjects. So uh, to my listeners who are still listening, uh, I will be linking uh, the counselor's Twitter handle on uh uh in the show notes and uh also her bio that is found on the town of Vegreville's website and the town of uh, vegarville's website on the show notes as well uh councillor once again thank you so much for doing this
1: oh it was a pleasure thanks for asking me and i will look forward to having you out to Vegreville, and we'll make sure that we feed you well that is one yeah. other thing that we can guarantee
0: Thank you once again for listening to the Cross-Border Interview Podcast. If you love this episode of the Cross-Border Interview Podcast, head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review. All the links to our social media accounts are in the show notes or visit www.crossborderinterviews.ca. The Cross-Border Interview Podcast was produced and edited by Miranda Brown and Associates Incorporated. Be sure to tune in for our next episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. Once again, thank you. Bye-bye.